of His Galilean ministry. And we find that in Luke chapter 4, beginning in verse 14. And today we're going to read through verse 21. I realize that that cuts, in most of your, uh, your translation, that cuts a paragraph right in half. That's okay. Uh, this larger section, if we were to read all the way to verse 30, presents to us a message that Jesus is preaching and a rejection that he faces. In fact, if I were to preach it, that probably would have been my outline, but uh, but we're going to stop. Today we're going to focus really just on the message of Christ, and Lord willing, we will come back and see uh, the rejection next week of the people in Nazareth. But today, reading Luke chapter 4, beginning in verse 14, and reading through verse 21, you can find that on page 859 if you picked up one of our ESVs. Before we read God's Word, we're going to go to the Lord in prayer, and also I realized that I forgot during the pastoral prayer to pray for Diana Jackins. Some of you may remember Diana was a member of our church and for the last several years has been living in Maine where she was raised. I received word this morning that Diana fell this week and broke her hip. She is in the hospital. I've heard I just heard this morning, uh, the doctors think that it will heal on its own, uh, but she's in a lot of pain. And so we're going to pray for our reading of God's Word. We're also going to pray for our sister Diana this morning. Let's pray together. O gracious and loving Lord, we pray that you would be the God who meets us in all of our afflictions, just uh, as we so often seem to face in this life. For our sister Diana, we thank you for her love and faithfulness and gentleness. And we pray that you would be with her in this affliction now as she is looking to you. Oh, Lord, we ask for your kindness. We ask for your mercy upon her body that she would heal quickly and that the pain uh, would be uh, as, as small as possible, uh, that you would be uh, gentle with her. And even as you continue to refine her, uh, we pray that you would, you would make her more like Jesus through this affliction, uh, that as she sees more and more uh, the... Uh, the brokenness of her body. May it remind her of her brokenness of soul and all of our brokenness, uh, which sin has worked in our lives. And would you call her, uh, would you cause her to call upon you more and more? Oh Lord, build her up, strengthen her with the fellowship of the saints and help us to be faithful in praying for her, even though uh, she's no longer here in worship with us. We pray that you would make us people who are faithful uh, to intercede on her behalf. Gracious Lord, we come now also to read your word, and we pray that you would uh, speak to us through it, uh, that you indeed would preach to us by Christ and by his very spirit and by your living word that you would lay us bare before you, that you would do a work that we cannot do on our own hearts because your spirit would be among us today. We pray that you would lay us bare, uh, that you may knit us back together uh, to make us whole people uh, because of the work of Christ our uh, living and ascended Lord, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. We hear now God's word as we find it in Luke chapter 4, beginning in verse 14. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out throughout all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. And he stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, the covering of sight to the blind, and to set at liberty those who are oppressed, 
to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Thus ends the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. May he add a blessing uh, to the reading and the hearing of it. We are, uh, of course, barely into January, uh, but already last year's numbers are out. And again, uh, Boston has been named one of the top entrepreneurial cities in the country. Depending on who you speak to and who's doing the counting, uh, Boston ranks somewhere between uh, number 8th and number 15th, best city in the states to start a business. And some of you know the routine. You may have been on board with uh, the biotechs and the cybersecurity firms and the robotics firms uh, in and around Boston. You know those, uh, those energetic CEOs that are able to take their ideas and turn them into billion-dollar acquisitions. You know how it goes, and you also know that somewhere between idea and acquisition, what you need is a really, really good marketing campaign, because you have to get your idea out there. You have to get it before the world. You have to attract investors. You have to get customers, and so you need to tell people what you are about, and normally that involves some sort of highly polished mission and vision statement, a short uh, punchy statements that you can put on your website and your business cards and your t-shirts and you can pass them out like candy and, and get your name out there. Scour cloud, making the web more secure with the power of AI. That, by the way, is my entrepreneurial backfall if this pastoring thing doesn't work out. That's my idea. It's patented. Please don't, please don't take it. But, uh, but even churches have gotten into the mix. If you are an organization, even a church, an organization of any size, you are expected to have some sort of soundbite version of what you are about. And here we are at Redeemer. And we've just gone through the process. And today in our Sunday school, we were talking about the new mission and vision statements for Redeemer. Well, we, we put those together not because we're hoping just to get more investors, not because we're hoping to outgrow uh, what we've got already, but because we think there is some value in that sort of thing. Even, yes, even some earthly value. There, there's something to be said for mission statements. There's a wisdom for our congregation, uh, for you all to know what we're about, to know the priorities that we have, the things that we will pursue, the things that we will not pursue. There's also a value in our setting in New England. Here we are, surrounded the landscape is littered by tall buildings with steeples on the top and a little sign that sits outside and the word church is on the sign and in the pulpit there is nothing of any spiritual value whatsoever. So there's some value in letting the community know who we are and what we believe and what we're about. Even if it's an earthly value, there is some value in mission statements and even if they don't look very good on a t-shirt. But... The truth is that before the dot-com boom and the tech crunch, before the, the church growth movement, Jesus framed his ministry with a mission statement. And it wasn't new, and it wasn't flashy, but it was a statement of what he had come to do, why the Father had sent him into the world. And Luke records it as the beginning 
of his public ministry in his, his hometown synagogue with every eye uh, looking at him, fixed upon him, and, and the people listening to what he was going to say, Jesus says that he has come to proclaim liberty. He's come to preach good news, to release the captives, to open blind eyes. That's what he's about. Jesus has come to set his people free. That's his mission statement. Or perhaps, as Phil Riken has put it, that is the gospel according to Jesus. Jesus has come to set his people free. And that's what we want to look at today, Jesus' mission statement. Our passage breaks down into two parts. One, really, is Luke's summary in verses 14 and 15, Luke's summary of Jesus' ministry, what he was about as he ministered and taught in Galilee. And then we find in verses 16 to 21 that Jesus' own summary of his mission. And so those are going to be our two headings today. We're going to look first at Jesus' ministry and then at Jesus' mission. What did he do and what was he uh, aiming at? What was he about? We'll start with, uh, with his mission. I'm sorry, his ministry, because that's where, where Luke starts, verses 14 and 15. And I've already told you, in verses 14 and 15, we have a summary of Jesus' ministry, but there's really more than that because we find here not just a summary but also a pattern. These uh, two little verses tell us not just what Jesus did in Galilee, but it could stand for what he did everywhere that Jesus went as he taught and he preached and he, he led the multitudes. He was clothed in the power of the Holy Spirit. He taught as no one else had ever taught, and everyone was infatuated with this teacher from Nazareth. And Luke's filling in the backstory. Before Jesus comes to his hometown synagogue, his, his reputation has preceded him, and that's because he's got a ministry that follows a particular pattern. And the pattern begins with the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, there is an intentional connection here in verse 14 with the previous passage. We read in chapter 4, verse 1, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, was led by the Spirit in the wilderness, and then after the temptation by Satan, he comes into Galilee, and we read in verse 14, Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and this is the beginning of the pattern of Jesus' ministry. It is about the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, don't forget Luke. It really is the evangelist of the Holy Spirit. Perhaps more uh, than Matthew, more than Mark, and maybe debatable whether more than John, Luke has a special interest in what the Lord is doing in the world to bring about his purposes through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And so in the gospel uh, that he writes in Luke, he chronicles the work of Christ by the spirit of anointing that he received at his baptism. And then in his second book, in the Acts of the Apostles, he chronicles the growth and the work of the church, but through the work of the Holy Spirit that came at Pentecost, Luke cares a lot about the Holy Spirit, and here in verse 14, he's showing us that predictably, categorically, what Jesus does when he ministers to his people, he does in the power of God's Spirit. Christ ministers the power of faith against the lies of the devil. He ministers with the power of holiness and righteousness. He ministers with the power to resist temptation. Jesus' ministry comes in the power of the Holy Spirit to proclaim the truth of the Word of God. That's the second part of the pattern of Jesus' ministry, that He comes in the power of the Spirit and He comes teaching God's Word. What does it say in verse 15? He returned the power of the Spirit, and then in verse 15, He taught 
in their synagogues. And actually, it's, it's really helpful that we have this right next to the sermon in Nazareth because that sermon in Nazareth and the details that we find in verses 16 through 21 really help us to understand what this might have looked like as Jesus went throughout the land. Uh, he was invited as a sort of guest preacher, as Paul the Apostle often was invited because he had some credentials. Paul could go throughout the Roman world and he could simply show up and share his credentials, the Hebrew of Hebrews. As to zeal for the law, a Pharisee trained under Gamaliel. And would you mind if I uh, teach the scriptures for you? Oh, no, go right ahead. And the same thing happens with Jesus. He's beginning to be recognized as a teacher, as a rabbi. And so when he comes into all of these different towns, he's invited to open and teach God's word. And that really was the focus of the synagogue service. The synagogue was different than the temple for the primary reason that the temple was the only place that the Jews were allowed to offer sacrifice. And so in the synagogues, the service was much simpler. There was no altar, there was no incense, there were no clanging cymbals, there was merely the people of God gathered around the word of God, and they read it, and they prayed it, and they sang it, and they heard it preached. In fact, if you were to go to uh, a synagogue service in the first century, you'd be confused by the language, of course, but, but you'd be pretty familiar with the forms and, and the way the service unfolded. A typical synagogue service began with the people uh, singing some of the psalms, normally uh, Psalm 145 to 150, as they began to worship the Lord. And then the call to worship would come from Deuteronomy, from the Shema, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one God. And after the call to worship, they would, they would have a few scriptural prayers, and then they would recite some of the scriptural blessings that the Lord had given to his people. And when all of that was done, uh, uh, several portions of God's word, specifically from the Torah, the first five books of Moses, those would be read in the hearing of the people, and they would read them in Hebrew, and then they would read them in Aramaic so that the people could understand what was being read. And after the reading of the Torah, then a special portion would be read from the prophets. And then someone would deliver an exposition, something like a sermon. It probably didn't have three points, that's okay, but something like a sermon on the passage that was read from the prophets. After the sermon, uh, the people would stand and they would receive the Aaronic benediction. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And they would say amen and they would go out and they would enjoy the rest of their Sabbath day. This is what happened. And, and isn't it interesting, though? This is the summary that, that Luke gives us of Jesus' ministry. Here he is with the power of the Holy Spirit the power to raise the dead and heal the sick and cure the blind and make the lame to leap for joy. And what's the summary of his ministry? He went to worship and he opened a book and he taught the people. That's what he does. The Puritans used to say that God has one son and he made him a preacher. Well, that's what Jesus is doing. That's the pattern of his ministry. He was found regularly in God's house among God's people opening God's word, and he did it by the power of the Holy Spirit. And all of that produced the last portion of this pattern of, of Jesus' ministry. It, it revealed, it didn't really produce, but it revealed the glory of the Savior. I think, I think Luke had a, a bit of a giggle uh, when he wrote verse 15. Uh, he taught in their synagogues being glorified by all. 
You see, the people in the synagogues might not have chosen that same description for what they were doing. Glory is a special word. Glory is a heaven word. It's a God word. Glory is something that you give only to the Lord, your creator. And, and the people probably would not have admitted that that's what they were doing with Jesus. They might have said, well, we like his teaching. We like the way that he carries himself. Clearly, the Lord is with him. We might have admired something about him, and no one ever spoke like this man. But if you ask them, are you glorifying Jesus? They would say, oh, no, 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 no. We, we, don't, we don't give glory to anyone but the Lord. That's what he said, Isaiah 42 Verse 8, I am Yahweh, that is my name, my glory I give to no other. They might not have acknowledged it, but Luke says this is what happened. They did what they were created for. Jesus went about in the power of the Spirit, opening God's word, and the people glorified him. I had a professor in seminary, and he had spent some time teaching on the West Coast. Uh, and he liked to tell about how on the beaches of Southern California, you could find the strangest things. Uh, specifically, he liked to tell about how you could go to almost any beach in Southern California, and you could be there at sunset while the people are gathered, and you could find whole groups of atheists and agnostics at sunset cheering and clapping for joy as the sun sets over the horizon and the whole sky burst into a cascade of orange and gold and red. And he said, you wanted to grab them and shake them and say, do you know what you're doing? If you really believe what you say you believe, that we're all just matter in motion, that it's all just particles and wavelengths reflecting off the water and hitting your retinas and causing some sort of synapse to fire in your brain, if that's all that's happening, why are you cheering? Why are you recognizing the beauty in something that happens every single day? And he says they might not have known it. They might not have admitted it. But what are they doing? And they're clearing, cheering and clapping. They're giving glory to the Lord who created them. Created them to ascertain beauty in creation. To take joy in the majesty of what the Lord has made. They're giving glory to the God of heavens and earth and the seas and all they contain, even as they suppress the truth of God by unrighteousness. And they may not have admitted it, but that's what they were doing. And so it was in the synagogues. Because that's what always happens. It's the undeniable truth that when Jesus ministers to humanity, humanity sees his glory. It is revealed. It cannot be hidden. This is the pattern. By the power of the Spirit, Jesus opens the Word of God, and humanity sees His glory. It happened in Nazareth right before they threatened to kill Him. You see, if we would have kept reading. Verse 22, And all spoke well of Him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from His mouth. They saw something glorious about Jesus didn't last very long. And soon, what they saw as glory became an affront to them. And his glory became something that put them and their tiny little worldview and their, uh, their tiny little earthly kingdoms in jeopardy. And so they railed against this glorious Savior that they were just marveling at. This undeniable glory was also what sealed the plot of the Jews against Jesus toward the end of his life, wasn't it? 
John uh, chapter 11, immediately after the raising of Lazarus, and yes, this was uh, a sign and not a teaching, but it's the same thing. Uh, John 11, verses 47 and 48, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and they said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs, and if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. You see it. Jesus' glory is undeniable. It puts earthly kingdoms in jeopardy. And so they have a choice. They've seen the glory, but they have to do something with it. And you can either acknowledge it and follow it and praise it, or you can try to silence it and snuff it out. And that's what they did. That's what they tried to do in Nazareth. That's what the Jews tried to do toward the end of Jesus' life. Except the Lord delivered him from both. In a sense, resurrection from Nazareth and resurrection from the grave. You see, this is why Jesus has such a dividing effect upon the world because his glory is undeniable and you have to do something with it. My uh, wife and I received an email this week. I I wasn't going to share this, but uh, my wife and I received an email this week from some friends of ours from seminary. And they've been serving as missionaries for the last few years in a large, powerful Asian country that they have never named in any of their email updates, but we all know where it is. And just this past month, they were home on furlough. They have three children. His wife is pregnant, and they were coming back to the States to visit family for a little bit and to deliver their child and to be here for four or five months and then return. But while they were here, they got word that everyone else who was a part of their mission work in this country where they were serving had been drawn in by the authorities in question and ejected from the country. And several of the native believers there had also been taken in. And they were not allowed to go back. Their entire life was in this country. They spent three years, her entire wardrobe, all she brought home was maternity clothes and and hand-me-downs for their children and the people that they were ministering to and the, the work that they were doing and all of it stifled. Why? Because Jesus is so glorious that those nations are feeling in jeopardy. They've got to do something with it. And they know how it works. If the truth of Jesus is able to get out, people will be drawn to it. And so they squelch it and they stifle it and they try to silence it. But it's undeniable. Jesus ministers to his people in the power of the Spirit and and he opens God's word and humanity sees his glory. We see it again at the end of Luke's gospel. And Jesus had been resurrected by the power of the Spirit. He walks on that Emmaus road with two of the disciples, and their eyes are kept from seeing him, but they're dismayed, and they're talking together. They can't believe what has happened, and their teacher and their friend has been taken away from them. And how will they go on, and what will life look like? And he says, oh, you of little faith. Didn't you know that this must happen? And then uh, Luke 24, verse 27, beginning with Moses and the prophets. Isn't that an interesting detail? Same as the synagogue service. Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. He opened God's word. And finally, they get to their destination. And he reveals to them who he is. And then he's gone. They turn to one another and they know that they have seen this before. It's a pattern. Their eyes have been opened like this before, and what do they say to one another? Did not our hearts burn 
when he opened the scriptures to us. Friends, that's how it is. That's how it still is here among us. Jesus isn't physically, personally present, but he is spiritually, personally present. And as we gather together, as you feel that burning sensation deep inside, it's not because you need a Prilosec this morning. It's because God's word is being opened to you and you're seeing something of his glory. Does not your heart burn within you when the scriptures are opened? I don't care how good the sermon is or isn't. When the word is open, when we gather to the Lord and have fellowship with him and his table, and when we proclaim his death until he comes, does it not show us something of his glory? And do not our hearts burn within us? And aren't we drawn almost imperceptibly, almost uncontrollably into worshiping him and rejoicing the one who is so glorious? This is how he ministers to his people. This is why we gather week after week after week. It's not to hear some great thing that Pastor Kerr has thought up. It's to be ministered to by Christ and the power of the Spirit as the word is open. It's to see the glory of the risen Savior. This is how it works. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. For God, who said, let light shine out of the darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That's how he works. That's the pattern of Jesus' ministry, and it brings him glory. But then we see the, uh, Jesus' mission, and that was about bringing freedom to his people. The first sermon that I ever preached uh, was in the church where I was baptized, the church where I was raised for the earliest portion of my life, and I was no longer a member of that church. I had switched denominations. I'd been away for a number of years, but there was an invitation to come, and I was still a college student. I was still learning how to, uh, how to teach and preach, and nobody should have let me teach and preach at that point, but they did, and they invited me, and in that congregation, uh, there were people who played with me when I was in the nursery. There were people who taught my Sunday school class, and and the teacher who would bring that big bowl of candy that we all got to choose from at the end. And there were people who recognized me and watched me grow up. And even though it was a bad sermon, and let me, let me put an exclamation point on that, it was a bad, bad sermon. <laughs> but even though it was a bad sermon, there was an anticipation, there was an excitement about seeing me come back and, and step into a, a sort of teaching role. As you can imagine the effect that Jesus has when he goes back to Nazareth where Luke says he had been brought up. And the hometown boy is back and his reputation has preceded him. And someone probably greeted him at the door. He said, Jesus, I, I remember you from when you were this big. And he sat there and he, and he sang with neighbors and with friends and with family members, probably people who were his customers in the carpenter's shop. He, he stood next to them and prayed, and then when the time came for the prophets to be read, Jesus was the one who stood up, and everybody was waiting to see what Jesus had to say. Now, there's some debate uh, as to how much of the early synagogue service was to a set liturgy. That is, how much uh, Jesus was able to choose his own passage and how much the passage might have been chosen for him. My idea, my sense is that, that Isaiah was probably the prophet for the day. 
uh, but within anywhere in that scroll of Isaiah, a rather large scroll of Isaiah, Jesus could pick uh, whatever passage was on his heart. And so he, he unrolled it, it says. He, he opened the scroll and he, he searched back and forth, rolling it back and forth, uh, just staring at, at long columns of Hebrew text. There were no vowels. There were no spaces between the words. There were no breathing marks, no verse numbers. But Jesus knew the word well enough to find uh, what he was looking for. And he found what we call now Isaiah 61. And he began to read. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And Luke doesn't record for us the entire sermon that Jesus preached on that text, but he does give us the main point. The point where Jesus spoke to them and he said, what you have just heard has come true. As these words of Scripture have entered your ears, this deliverance is accomplished. You are witnessing the anointed one. Remember, that's the word for Christ, for Messiah. You are looking at the chosen Savior, he said to them. The one the Lord has sent into the world, he stands before you. He declares liberty for God's oppressed people. And in no uncertain terms, Jesus picked a messianic prophecy and he said it applied in complete detail to himself. And the reason they could know that God was bringing freedom for his people is because they could hear it. And they could hear him speaking it to them. In the power of the Spirit, Jesus is opening the word of God. And the people are seeing the glory of his mission. Now, the mission that Jesus was on was one of freedom. He says the Lord has sent him to proclaim good news for poor, liberty for captives, sight for the blind, and freedom for the oppressed. Four categories of people, poor and blind and oppressed and captive. And, and more than a little bit of discussion has been has been uh, given and, and offered on what exactly Jesus has in mind with these four different categories of people. Uh, the basic discussion centers on whether Jesus is declaring good news to the literal poor, materially poor, uh, or whether he has in mind something like uh, the poor in spirit, something metaphorical like what he said in the Sermon on the Mount. Now, we've seen this before. Most notably, we saw this in Isaiah chapter 11, uh, just before Christmas time. This is not the first time we've seen this discussion when people are trying to figure out, is Jesus speaking of physical poverty or spiritual poverty? And this will not be the last time that we see this in Luke's gospel. Aside from having a special emphasis on the Holy Spirit, Luke seems to have a special emphasis on the poor, the materially poor, the, the physically oppressed. And so he seems to record more of Jesus' teaching on uh, compassion to oppressed peoples than almost any other gospel writer. We have it all over the place. And even Jesus in chapter 7, when Jesus is questioned by uh, messengers from John the Baptist, they come to him and they say, John the Baptist has sent us to ask, are you the Christ or should we wait for another one? What does Jesus do? Well, it says, in that hour he healed many of the people and he drove out many of the, the demons and he, and he delivered them. And then he points to literal physical miracles and works of mercy and he says, here's your proof. And go back and, and tell John what you've seen. And blessed is the one who's not offended by me. That's his answer. Are you the Christ? And he heals people and he delivers people and he preaches good news to the poor and he says, here's your evidence. 
that there is some, uh, some aspect that, that Christ has come to uh, alleviate human suffering in this life. There's some significance in thinking about Jesus' ministry of, uh, of helping people with life under the sun. Jesus is a compassionate teacher. He is a loving Savior. He is the shepherd who is grieved by the torments of his lambs as they are oppressed by vicious men. And we have to acknowledge. We have to acknowledge that if we are to faithfully follow Jesus, we must have the same kind of compassion for the needy and the downtrodden that Jesus had. That's what repentance looks like, doesn't it? You remember Luke chapter 3? John the Baptist, what... What is repentance all about? And he says, I'll tell you what repentance looks like. It looks like giving your tunic to clothe the naked. And it looks like giving your food to feed the poor. And it looks like mercy. And it looks like compassion. And it looks like acts of generosity and charity. And so that was part of Jesus' mission. And it ought to be part of ours too. But we also have to acknowledge that if all, if all Jesus has come to do is to alleviate suffering in this life, if that was the sum total of his mission, then he has left us helpless against the greatest oppression that the world has ever known. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 19, If in Christ we have hope, in this life only we are of all people most to be pitied. If all that Christ has done is come to help those who are poor in this life to raise up out of the dregs of poverty, then what's the point? What a pity. Why don't we all just pack it up and go home if that is the mission of Christ? But it's not the mission of Christ. That's because there is a poverty that is worse than material destitution. There is a blindness that is darker than that experienced by people who have not the use of their eyes. There is a captivity that is more degrading than the deepest pits of the darkest dungeons ever devised by the minds of men. And Jesus has come to set his people free from our deplorable spiritual emptiness, our unrighteousness, our sin and iniquity. He's come to break the chains of bondage to sin and bondage to those fleshly desires that keep us unable to do any spiritual good to save ourselves. That's the captivity we're talking about. That's the captivity Jesus was talking about. That's his mission, to break the power of sin and to set his people free. He's come to open spiritual eyes of people who are so blind that they wouldn't recognize the righteousness of God if it grabbed them by the throat. That's what he has come to do. He's come to bring freedom to a people enslaved by sin. Say, so, yeah, but how do you know that that's what he's come to do? Well, we know because he's preaching from Isaiah. We know because he's preaching from Isaiah. Now, Isaiah is concerned about a lot of things. Isaiah is concerned about uh, earthly poverty and oppression and materialism and injustice and all of these things, but over 66 chapters, Isaiah continues to take all of his concerns and he filters them back through one undergirding principle, one fault that is wrong in Israel and wrong in the world. Why is Israel such a mess? It's because they've turned their backs on God Almighty. They have denied the holiness 
and the righteousness of the Lord their maker. They've sold themselves into idolatry, into rebellion. They've sold themselves into trusting the strength of men more than the promises of God. That's Isaiah's complaint with Israel. And the indictment comes very early in his book. Chapter 1, verse 4. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity. That's the problem. Sin and iniquity. Offspring of evildoers, he says. Children who deal corruptly. They've forsaken the Lord. They've despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. Because of Israel's sin, the primary theme of Isaiah's judgment is that there will come a day when God will remove them from the land that they have enjoyed for so long. They will be swept away into exile by a people that they have not known and under a language that they have not known, and they will become captives in a foreign land. In fact, the word that Jesus quotes in verse 18 of our text in Luke, where he says, I have come to proclaim liberty for the captives, the word actually is prisoners of war. How many prisoners of war do you think were in Nazareth in the time that Jesus was preaching? Probably not too many. But that's what he's come to do. Hostages taken in conflict, sold into enemy territory. This is the day that Isaiah was talking about. The day of judgment and exile for sin. The horrors of slavery because of iniquity. Then Isaiah's other themes are that another day will come. It's a day of restoration day of recovery and return to the blessings of the Lord by the work of the Savior. And the most glorious thing about that wonderful day when all that change happens is not just that their situation will be changed, but that their hearts will be changed. So far as Luke records it for us, Jesus ended his quotation of Isaiah 61 halfway through verse 2. He may have read more, but this is all that we have. But if if he did read more, I want you to see what the people would have heard. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 61, please. Isaiah chapter 61. This is the passage that Jesus is quoting from. And he he stops halfway through verse 2, really in the middle of a line. But Isaiah 61 says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because He's anointed me to bring good news, jump to verse 2, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness pleasant planting of the Lord. How does Jesus, how does the Messiah bring good news to the poor? He doesn't fill their bank accounts. He makes them righteous. The pleasant planting of the Lord, the work that he has done, the tilling and and the cultivating and the watering and the fertilizing, the raising up to bear spiritual fruit, it comes from the Lord and his work in his people through his Savior, through his Messiah, the anointed one. And Jesus says, this is the way I'm preaching good news. There is righteousness available. You can be the pleasant planting of the Lord. And it's not because you're able of your own initiative. It's not because you can see your way to it because you're blind. 
not because you can grab hold of it because your hands are chained by your iniquity. But he says there's a righteousness available, and it's a gift. It's a gift of the Lord that he takes away their sin and gives them the gift of gladness and obedience from hearts changed by love. Now, Jesus, quoting Isaiah, says this deliverance is like the year of the Lord's favor, the year of jubilee. It was that grand Sabbath that God had proclaimed for his people. It was meant to be a year of restoration, and you can read all about the year of Jubilee later. I encourage you to do so in Leviticus chapter 25. We won't, we won't read the whole thing, but there are some parallels here. Every 50th year in Israel, all debts were to be canceled. All slaves were to be set free, and all Israel was to return to their family inheritances, no matter the poverty they had gotten themselves into in the intervening 49 years. It was like a reset button for the people, for, for the land, for the economy of Israel. It was a reset, and it all pointed to a greater deliverance that God was going to bring. Here's what Leviticus chapter 25 says, verses 9 and 10. You shall sound the trumpet on the tenth day of the seventh month, on the day of atonement, you shall sound the trumpet throughout all your land, and you shall consecrate the 50th year and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you. That's the way it happened. On the day of atonement, when the sacrifice was prepared, when the blood was spattered on the altar, the symbol that their sins had been forgiven, the Lord says, sound the shofar. Break out the ram's horns. Blow them as loud as anyone can hear. And that person who is sitting in the debtor's prison, his heart leaps for joy because his debt is forgiven. Why? Because of atonement. Because he has a gracious God. Because he has a Lord who loves him and will send forgiveness and restoration. That was the message of Jubilee. And no wonder Isaiah saw Jubilee in the shadow of the Messiah. No wonder Jesus saw Jubilee as his mission. Because he's the one who comes to bring atonement. And so he tells them, with every eye fixed on him, and there's a, there's a play on words here. It says, when every eye was fixed upon him, he says, this has been fulfilled in your ears. You've heard it. Just like that ram's horn would sound throughout the land and everyone would know that they were free and restored, he says, when you hear my voice, you know that the Lord has brought deliverance. What did we sing today? He speaks, listening to his voice, new life the dead receives. The mournful, broken hearts rejoice. The humble, poor believe. He breaks the power of reigning sin. He sets the prisoner free. His blood can make the foulest clean. His blood availed for me. Charles Wesley wrote that on the one-year anniversary of his conversion. And it just smells of Luke chapter 4 and Isaiah 61 and Leviticus 25. It just smells of jubilation. It just smells of release. It smells of the favor of the Lord poured out because there is an atonement offered for God's people. That debts are canceled that you could never repay on your own. This is the mission of Christ Jesus, to set his people free. And when you hear his voice, when you hear him ministering to you by word and spirit, does not your heart burn within you? 
Don't you long to taste that freedom? Don't you rejoice that you've already tasted that freedom? Don't you look back on your life and say, I can't believe those things that I used to be entwined with and somehow the Lord called me to himself and I walked away from them. They used to be so important to me, but then they became nothing. And what changed? The Lord set you free. Soon after my father was converted, I remember a conversation. Uh, we were in someone's home. I was maybe six or eight at the time. My father was sharing the gospel with a young woman with a very rough background. I don't remember who she is or what the situation was, but they talked, and the Lord called her. And the strangest thing, her reaction was, I have a lot of tapes and CDs at home that I need to burn. Heavy metal and hard rock and all that sort of thing. And, and there's a sense that we might look at that and say, that's awfully legalistic. <laughs> to think that if you become uh, one of the Lord's people, you have to give up uh, hard rock. Or, or whatever, whatever your small vice. Maybe for you, like John Newton, it was a foul mouth. Maybe it was swearing like a sailor. Maybe for you, it was... Uh, it was uh, sexual promiscuity. Maybe for you it was, it was hatred and bitterness and anger. Maybe for you it was discontentment. But isn't it amazing when the Lord calls you to himself, you suddenly say, I think there are some things I need to get rid of. Because they don't hold me anymore. They don't define me. Because I've been set free by Christ. Praise the Lord that that's what he has come to do. Jesus Christ has come to set his people free, to cleanse us, and to restore us to himself. And because we've been restored, to set us free, to break the power of reigning sin. This is what Jesus came to do. This is his mission. Jesus has come to set his people free. Why don't you pray with me? Oh, gracious, glorious, righteous Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it speaks, it speaks of your son. It speaks of the one who gave himself for us so that we might become your people and your children, so that we might be free from sin and every weight that clings so closely as you call us to cast them off and follow you. Oh, Lord, we are bound in sin and Nature's night until you call us, until you speak your word into our hearts by your spirit. Oh, thank you for doing a work in our hearts. Thank you for releasing us. We pray that we would taste that freedom more and more. We would see that the things of this world would grow strangely dim. The things that used to hold us, the things that used to entice us. We pray that you would continue to grow your people in freedom to follow you and to love you, to recognize that the chains are broken. And so you are giving your spirit now to your people to rise up and follow as we are cleansed and clothed with the righteousness of Christ. Lord, if there are any here who have not yet tasted that freedom, we pray that you would speak to them by your word and by your spirit, cause their heart to burn within them, to look and see the glory of Jesus and to believe and to be saved and to be set free. We pray in Christ's name, amen. Come now to a table that proclaims to us the victory of Christ and the freedom that he has won for his people. It is a sacrament between the times, between the time of his 
sacrifice given, His body and blood offered up for us, between that and the time of His gathering His elect to Himself, where we will eat and drink in His presence in perfect blessedness forever. This is both a proclamation and a promise to God's people. If you have trusted in Him, if you know the joy of being His child, of being set free from the bonds of your sin, come and eat and drink, even if those sins have railed against you this week. Come in repentance, come in faith, come in jubilee to experience the favor of the Lord. Now is the acceptable time. Now is the day of the Lord's favor. Come, eat and drink in happiness and enjoy in what He has done, righteousness accomplished and given to all of His children to secure salvation for them. If you've not yet trusted in the Lord, let me proclaim to you that your sins are not forgiven, that there is no jubilation, that there is no righteousness of your own, no garment that you can weave for yourself. Your best works are as filthy rags. Please do not come. If you've not trusted in the Lord, please do not come and eat and drink at this table and eat and drink judgment upon yourself. But consider whether the Lord is calling you to himself. Consider whether he is drawing you with cords of love to see and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and so be saved. We read the words of institution as we find them in Mark's gospel that Jesus, as he was eating with his disciples, took bread. And after blessing it, he broke it and he gave it to them and he said, take, this is my body. And he took a cup. When he had given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank of it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Please join me in prayer. O Lord our God, we pray that you would draw us to yourself even now as you feed us by your word and by your sacrament and by your spirit. Cause us to feast upon Christ by faith, not carnally, not fleshly, but to feast on him with our eyes and our hearts lifted to you to rejoice in what he has done and to see him by eyes of faith where he is seated at the right hand of the Father. We work faith more and more in your people. Refine us. Sanctify us. Make us your own, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. The Lord Jesus Christ, in the night in which he was betrayed, gathered together with his disciples and he took bread. And after he blessed it, he broke it. And he gave it to them. And he said, this is my body which is broken for you. Take and eat. Do this in remembrance of me.